John chapter 3, we're going to look at uh, just one verse, the most familiar verse possibly in all of the Bible. We have not arrived here without having looked at everything that precedes it in this third chapter concerning what Jesus has said to Nicodemus. Fairly often we sing a hymn written by a man named Frederick Lehman. He was a pastor born in Germany. He immigrated to the United States with his family when he was a child, lived most of his life in the Midwest, finished his years in California. A brief sketch of his life says that he wrote over a hundred hymns, but perhaps his most notable is one that you will recognize entitled, The Love of God. Let me remind you of the first half of the first verse of that hymn. The love of God is greater far than any tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. What we're going to see this morning out of John chapter 3 in the 16th verse is the love of God displayed and very aptly written of here by Frederick Lehman, greater than any tongue could tell, greater than any pen could write of, is the expression of the love of God to the world in which he created. We've come to the point in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus where we're reading of the greatest expression of love the world has ever known. There is not a greater love that can be mentioned, not a greater love that can be experienced. To a far greater degree than any of us can love one another, God the Father has loved us. The love of the Creator for His creatures surpasses and is the very fountainhead of all other loves. Let me read you something that Paul wrote in the 8th chapter of Romans, writing about the love of God, of which we have saying, and we'll read again here momentarily. You're familiar with these words, so just listen as I read them. Paul asked the question, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Before I go on, have you ever thought of that statement or that question in reverse? If God is against us, who or what can be for us? Nothing, no one. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword, as it is written, 
For your sake we are killed all day long, accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am persuaded, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Every great expression of the love of God that you find in scriptures comes to us, just as Paul states here, in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's read again from John chapter 3. Just going to pick up in verse 10, not rereading the first nine verses, but in those first nine verses, of course, Jesus tells Nicodemus of the absolute necessity of his being born again. And then in verse 10, Jesus says to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who, is, he who has come down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the truth of this verse. Give us an understanding of it, we pray. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to remember what we just read, how Jesus appealed to Numbers chapter 21. We went back last week and we read where the people of Israel after having been greatly delivered, began to complain and grumble against the Lord. And he chastised them and disciplined them by sending fiery serpents, snakes amongst them to bite them. And once bitten, they would die. But then the Lord answered the request of Moses when he prayed for this people. And the Lord instructed him to lift up a bronze serpent on a pole and Everyone who looks to that pole and to looks to that serpent on top of that pole believing would live, even though they had been bitten. Jesus appeals to this as an illustration, and he says, Just like this happened with Moses and the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The 15th verse says that whoever believes in him should not perish. So let's settle one thing in our heart and mind and come under submission to the Word of God, at least this one point. All in the world, outside of Christ, are perishing. All in the world who are outside of Christ and believing in Him are perishing. And that's the way each one of us have been brought into this world. 
as those who are perishing and who will certainly experience an eternal wrath from a holy God if something doesn't happen, if he doesn't intervene. But that verse goes on to say that those who believe will have eternal life or the more familiar perhaps everlasting life, life that has no end, but also of a much higher degree and quality. This is the type of life that we do well and are wise to pursue. This is the type of life that if you were to ask any man, if you were to ask any woman, they would agree, yes, I want this everlasting life, but sadly, many will not reach out and take it and come on the terms of God. Simple, yet they be. That gets us to the 16th verse, which I pointed out to you last week, begins with a word that takes us back to the foundation that has been set the first half of this conversation. Four. Wouldn't be wrong to read it, therefore, based upon what we now know. Now, therefore, Jesus makes this greatest statement of the love of God concerning himself. So I want to talk to you just this one verse, and I want to do it under four headings. The first being the initiative of the loving Father. The second being the limitless love of God. Third, the indescribable gift of the Son. And then fourth, we're going to look at the call to believe in what Jesus has said. So let's look first about concerning the initiative of the loving Father. The 16th verse begins by simply saying, For God so loved the world. Jesus had used the illustration of Moses in the wilderness. There, there was a response of God to the request of Moses to be merciful to the people. When we get to verse 16... There was no one who interceded for a lost and perishing people that prompted God the Father to bring in the remedy, the way of salvation. The remedy and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and His work was solely at the discretion and the loving initiative of the Father. That's important to recognize and it's an important point here to see because it only magnifies the love of the Father for His lost world. It would have been loving certainly for Him to, in response to some request, to then bring in the way of salvation in Christ. But this is of His own initiative and certainly settled in the councils of heaven before time began. The Father knew that the fiery serpent of sin had bitten all, and all in Adam had died. All in Adam were perishing. 
So he provides a remedy. The promise that was made way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, of one who would come and crush the head of the fiery serpent is now being fulfilled and carried out in time. And even the one who is accomplishing it is here speaking of what God has done for the salvation of the world. I want you to think for just a moment and answer the question in your own mind and heart. What moved the Father to take such action? How would you answer that question? What moved the heart of God to take such drastic action for the salvation of the world? Understanding who He is, needing nothing, not limited by time, standing completely outside of time, what moved him to devote the sacred head of Christ for such a worm as I? Another part of an old hymn that we sing. What's the answer to that question? It's love. Of all that the scriptures tell us about who God is, Everything that he is, his wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, all of those things expressed to humanity flow out of his love for humanity. The scriptures tell us things like he is not willing that any should perish. The scriptures tell us that he is long-suffering. The scriptures tell us that God has taken the initiative to bring the remedy for the bite of the serpent. And just like those in the wilderness lifted up their eyes looking to the brazen serpent, those who lift up their eyes by faith looking to Christ will certainly be saved, immediately justified before God. I want to read you several verses that speak of this love initiative of God. And usually I would just give you the reference and then read the verse, but I'm, I'm going to go a little more slowly because I want you to actually, if you will, take your Bible and turn to these verses and see them on the page. The first is in Titus, Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 through 7. And again, We're looking at what the scriptures reveal to us about the loving initiative of God. We're answering the question, what moved him to act, to give his only begotten son? Paul answers this question, though not directly. He answers this question in this way in the fourth verse of Titus chapter 3, when he says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared... So the giving of his own son, the sacrificing of his own son, was an expression of his kindness and the love of God towards mankind. And Paul says, he goes on there saying, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior 
that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So answer the question, what prompted, what moved him to such an expression of love? Paul says it this way, his kindness and his love for mankind. Again, we're appealing to Paul, but this time in Romans chapter 5, in the 8th verse. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us. How so? How is God showing forth his love for his people? How is God showing forth his love to use the word of John 3.16 for the world? He is demonstrating his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What moved him? What prompted him? Again, his love. 1 John chapter 4. Verses 9 through 10. In this the love of God was manifested toward us. That means in this the love of God was shown. It was revealed. That God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let's get the biblical order right. In this is love, not that we loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a big word, but what it means is it appeased the wrath of God. It removed the fury of God, the just anger of God against Sinful humanity. In that same letter, 1 John chapter 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. How greatly have we been loved. And then perhaps one of the greatest displays is read in the 19th verse of 1 John chapter 4. Eight words that summarize so much of the gospel. Eight words that summarize the initiative of God and the response of his people. Verse 19, 1 John 4, we love him because. How would you fill that in? This is how John fills it in. We love him Because he first loved us. Do you love the Lord? Say yes. Why do you love the Lord? He first loved you. If you have any love in your heart for your Father in heaven, you can rest assured it is because he first set his love upon you. 
All of these are different ways of the tangible expressions of God's love for us. How did he first love us? Is another question. How did he first set his love on us? The answer is simply in Christ, but yes, can we give a tangible expression of that love? What have we read and what have we studied and what, Lord willing, has he taught us about the first half of this discussion Jesus has with Nicodemus? Nicodemus, you self-righteous Pharisee, you must be born again. The wind blows where it will. You hear the sound. You can't tell where it comes from. You can't tell where it goes, but you know it's there. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The second half of this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus is built, obviously, upon the first. If we are to be numbered amongst the whosoever believes in the 16th verse, then it will be true of us that the wind of the Spirit has blown upon us. The wind of the Spirit has come upon us and borne us again, borne us from above. And now we have, in a sense, become willing in the day of His power. This is the initiative of the loving Father. The first two words, for God. He is the great instigator of redemption. He is the author of redemption. The entirety of the scriptures is an unveiling, unfolding of what he would do, the lengths he would go to to redeem a sinful humanity. But it doesn't take us long in this verse to not only see his initiating love, but to see the greatness of that love. And the greatness of that love is expressed in one little word in English comprised of only two letters. For God so loved the world. He so loved the world. If you're a father, if you're a parent, you know what it is like to have such great love for your children. You know what it is like to so love them, you would do anything for them. Give your own life for them if you must, but you will express your love to them and your great love for them. This is what John is saying to us here in this language as he records Jesus' words, For God so loved the world, so greatly, so richly. But then we have to say, How so? It would be one thing for me to tell my wife, I love you. I need to do that, and I need to do that often. We all need to express in words of love for those around us. But if we don't ever go any further than just merely saying words, there will be a point in time where those words are empty. They have no meaning behind them. They're just words again. 
Do you see that here in this verse? This is not just God saying, I love the world. This is his acting upon what he says. This is the proof. This is the fruit of his love for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave. So let's talk about the word world here for a moment. Remember, this is important to understand this word rightly. Who is Jesus speaking to? A Pharisee, a Jew. A Jew who whose mindset was when the Messiah comes, he is going to restore the kingdom to Israel. He is going to put down the Roman oppression. He is going to come in with a rod of iron and rule like David. And we will be restored to our glory days, our glory years. But in truth, the Messiah didn't come like that. The Messiah came meek and mild, lowly, Humble, riding on a donkey, born of a virgin, born in the most humble of circumstances. His birth first declared to the most humble shepherds. So Nicodemus and all of those like him had it completely backwards. They thought that their king, their Messiah, would be like David who would come and shed the blood of their enemies. But in reality... The gospel says the king has come, his name is Jesus, and he's shedding his own blood for the enemy. You see the great difference? The Old Testament kings shed enemies' blood. The Son of God, the king, sheds his own blood for his enemies. God so loved the world, not just the Jew. The world, the Gentiles, the pagans. If Nicodemus had been faithful to the Old Testament scriptures, he would have readily known this. He would have readily have recalled to mind the Psalms. Let the coastlands be glad. Let the nations rejoice. All the peoples to the end of the earth, that promise extends past the Jew, even to the Gentiles like us. This is not a, an expression of a universal salvation. Some people read it like that, but let me just tell you plainly, they're reading it wrongly. Not everyone will be saved. There is just too much Scripture that speaks to the contrary. Jesus Himself speaks too often of Gehenna, the lake of fire. He too often speaks of the real place of hell, and those who will experience the eternal damnation of God in that place where the worm never dies, where the fire is never quenched. So when we're reading John 3.16 and other verses that include this word world, we have to understand it rightly. All peoples of all places, of all languages, without discrimination, without exception, God has loved them for God so loved the world. How did he prove this love? This is the, the third point. This is the indescribable gift of his own son that he initiated, that knew no limits. You realize 
There was no length that he would go to to redeem our lostness. There was nothing greater than he could have done than what he did in giving his own son. Let's center and focus on one word here again, and it's the word gave. For God, his initiative, so loved, so greatly without limit, that he gave his only begotten son. Just a few words about this phrase, the only begotten son, before we look at the word gave. To understand Jesus Christ rightly, we have to agree with the scriptures that he has no beginning, he has no end. He is the eternal Son of God that has always been. That's what John says in the prologue to his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Jesus Christ has always been. If we were to believe that he had a beginning, we would be heretics. And the gospel would have no power. Because God gave His only begotten Son. Now obviously, there was a point in time when Jesus was born of a virgin, when He became incarnate, when He became both fully God and fully man. This is whom the Father gave to the world as an indescribable gift. That's the word Paul uses to speak of, of this mystery in Second Corinthians. He is the only begotten Son, unique. The phrase here you so often hear or read, begotten, not created. And He was given to the world. There's a couple of different ways that we need to understand the word gave. First, He was the Father's provision. The Father gave His Son to the world as a provision for salvation. We could also understand the word as He was the Father's gift to the world. But the best and greatest way we can understand this word is to see it reach its full culmination in that He gave, even to the point of death, the death of the cross. All of the rest of Scripture bears this out. Christ did not just come into the world to live a sinless life and ascend back into heaven. Both of those things are true. He did come into the world, live a sinless life, and ascend back into heaven. But there was something there in the middle that, that especially applies to this word, gave. He gave him to the point of death. He gave him to the cross. He gave him to be crucified. He gave him over. And we can't not see here that Jesus Christ himself, being fully God and fully man, gave himself. Just like Abraham and Isaac. Isaac surrendered himself to his father. 
Jesus the Christ surrendered himself, setting aside the glory that he had enjoyed with the Father from eternity past, counted it not robbery, being equal with him, humbled himself, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. But this is the Father's doing. He gave him. And Christ was willing to be given. So we've seen the Father taking initiative. He did not leave mankind eternally lost. And we read this morning, importantly, Hebrews chapter 11. It was even by faith, especially by faith, that the Old Testament saints were saved as they looked forward to the point in time when the Son would make entrance into the world to accomplish their redemption, to bleed and to die for them. I read one of the saddest things that I've read in a long time this week. It was about a friend, and it was said of him, no one was more deserving to enter heaven than this man. I'm not going to give you his name. Some of you would know him. But that took me aback. He was a good man, and I loved him. He didn't deserve heaven. No one does. Whoever wrote that misunderstands the gospel greatly. Just don't understand. No one deserves. If you deserve, there is no grace. No one deserved. The, initiate, the initiating love of the Father to give His Son. It's all of grace. He gave His only begotten Son. And remember, this is the one of whom He would say, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the Son that had known close communion with the Father throughout eternity past and is even now at the right hand of the Father interceding for us that communion was only broken briefly but violently at Calvary where the Father forsook the Son for me. Where He forsook the Son for all who believe. He gave him. Now we've reached the point in the verse where we begin to reap the benefit of the truth that we've been taught, the truth of what Jesus has made known. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Why? Let's answer the question why, and then we'll be done. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, life eternal. Again, we see here the only two categories of mankind, 
those who are perishing, those who will inherit eternal life, those who are saved, those who are redeemed, those who have become children of God, those who have escaped darkness and have been translated, transferred by God into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And it all centers down. I want you to see the how the scriptures are just condensed down here to a few words. How the spotlight is shown upon these words. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now let me give you a warning. Do not let, quote, high theology confuse you. Do not let the fact that Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And the mystery of it, the mystery of giving a new heart, the mystery of the Spirit blowing where it wills, the point of that is simply that as mankind, we cannot fathom it. We can't understand it. Don't let that truth keep you from believing in Christ as your Savior. This is the way J.C. Ryle says this. He says it masterfully. He says, although man's salvation is entirely of God. First half of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus, you must be born again. You can't do it yourself. I have to do it for you. You don't know how this is going to happen, when this is going to happen. But if you are to have eternal life, you will be born from above. And now it seems like the coin has been turned over and Jesus is telling him, you better believe. (laughs) J.C. Ryle says, man's salvation is entirely of God. This is a truth. His ruin, if he will be lost, will stem entirely from himself reaping the fruit that he has sown. That's not a contrasting statement. It rests upon the foundation of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. If you will be saved, it will be of God. Salvation is from the Lord. If you are lost, you are reaping the fruit of your own decision. That's why I give you the warning. Do not let your heart and your head become confused. The gospel message is very simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Will you believe or will you not? And then you, here is where confusion sets in. Well, I don't know if I can believe because I don't know if I've been born again. I don't know if the wind of the Spirit has blown upon me. I don't know if I'm the elect of God. I don't know this. I don't know that. Put that over there. And here, whoever believes in him should not perish will have everlasting life. Then later, you can put the pieces together. I've believed on him under the saving of my soul for eternal life because he has borne me again, because he gave me new life. I love him. Why? Because he first loved me. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life.
We refer to ourselves as, in many different terms, Christians, followers of Christ, believers. Are you a believer? Are you believing in Jesus Christ? Nothing else will suffice. Everything else is not enough. Anything but Christ is too little. Everything but Christ is too little. Will you believe in Him? Let me just briefly recount how greatly someone spurns the grace of God if they will not believe. They're mocking the initiative of God in their own remedy of salvation. They're doubting the limitless love of God and they're scorning the indescribable gift of the Son. The gospel couldn't be any more simple. I've probably made it way too complicated. The gospel is simply mankind is perishing because of their sin. And if something doesn't happen before you die, you'll go on to reap the consequence and the fruit of having sinned against God. But Christ has been raised up on a pole, so to speak. And all who look to Him believing will find there the remedy for the bite of the serpent. So the question really is, will you give up everything else? Rich young ruler, sell it all. Nicodemus, deny your birth. Will nothing else matter to you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified? That's the real question. You say, yes, I want to believe. What do I do? You believe. You confess to God your belief in His Son as having made payment for your sin, realizing that you were do a just, eternal condemnation, but Christ stood in your stead on the cross of Christ, fully on the cross of Calvary, fully absorbing the wrath of God, and now you are simply believing that His work is sufficient, that His work is enough, that His work alone, nothing else, is all I need. If I die before I get out of this room and I have put my faith in Christ, I am eternally secure. So I'll leave you with the question, will you believe? Let's pray. Father, we come. We're thankful for the message of the gospel. Thankful for this great verse of truth, which so simply sets it forth. Lord, help our 
understanding of all of these things. Lord, we're thankful to be able to study the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Lord, I pray that it would result in the salvation of all who hear it. Lord, we glory in the fact that you took the initiative of loving the world so richly, so greatly that you gave your only begotten Son. And now forward, any who will come believing in him will have eternal life. Father, we trust that the wind will blow where it wills. And you will give us the ability to see the fruit of it. We give you all the praise and glory for Christ our Savior. We ask all of these things in his name. Amen.